Hi everyone, I'm Cinzia. Welcome to another episode of Stories of Climate Justice. A few days ago, I had a very nice conversation with Miguel Robles. He's one of the core organizers of the Soil Not Oil conference that is also supported by the amazing Vandana Shiva. He has a long experience in organizing, especially the Spanish-speaking community in California. He was one of the field organizers for the famous Prop 37 campaign in 2012 for adopting GMO labeling. In our conversation, we talked about the importance of soil, agriculture, the use of GMOs in the US, and the effects of climate change both in Central America, where he lives currently, and in California. You'll see, I had a lot of fun. Before leaving you to the conversation, I want to remind you that you can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and SoundCloud. If you like it, please subscribe and if you can, leave a review or follow us on Instagram. You can find us at Stories of Climate Justice. First of all, thank you, Miguel so much for for being on on this podcast and for finding the time to talk with me and I would just like to start asking you to introduce yourself tell us a little bit about your story and um, where are you now okay my name is Miguel Robles I am the the founder of the soul not all coalition that is a project focused in practical solutions to climate change I live in Mexico now, but I used to live for many years in, in California. And my background is more or less, I am coming from the left movements in Latin America. I was working for many years in globalization, democracy, human rights, in the United States on immigrant rights. But after over 10 years ago, I started working more in food justice and environmental issues. So right now I am living in Chiapas in Mexico. I got land here and I, am, I have a project on permaculture, agroecology, bioconstruction. And, but the main thing is like restoration, ecological restoration of the area where I have the land. Okay. And uh, what is uh, ecological restoration? What do you do exactly there? I have 20 hectares. And in this place, the people that sold it are locals, are local Mayas, and they sell this land because it's in the mountain, because they want to buy land in the valleys that are, it's inexpensive, it's a little far, but it's inexpensive, it's warmer, and it's better for to grow corn. So they sell the, the places like where I am now, but I was talking with the father of, of Roberto, who works with me, and then he said, you know, when I I was a kid in this area, there were big trees. Everything was a big forest. And I said, what happened? He says, well, my dad sold it. You know, there was a timber company was here with big machines. Say they cut all the trees. And now we have trees, but are small in comparison with the old growth trees. And then I asked the father of Cesar, Don Jose, Don Jose, do you ever regret that you cut all the trees in the mountain? And he said, Yes, I regret because I sold it very cheap. Now I could have made a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> But the, 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 the paradox is that his grandson, the son of Cesar, is working for me, digging holes, planting trees. So, and that is what we are doing. We are trying to restore the ecology and to bring back the biodiversity. Mm -hmm. So that is, is 
for me, the ecological restoration, we are trying to create a corridor for biodiversity. And I am talking with my neighbors and trying to connect the forest, you know, so we don't cut trees in the future. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and you mentioned the Soil Not Oil Coalition. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did you start the project? Well, the project, the thing is that in 2015, it was launched the International Year of Soils by the Minister of Agriculture of France. And many people was looking for, sol for answers. Where ca what can we do with the carbon? Well, most of the carbon is in the, in the, in the soil, you know, it's buried by millions of, from millions of years ago, it has been <laughs> under the underground, like oil, you know, we're bringing out all death. So it's why we are dying because we are bringing out the death, you know? So what happened is that this minister, they launched an initiative that is for the four per 1000, in which they say, if we increase the soil organic matter, then we can bring back everything that is released every year by cars and, and factories, you know, to try to mitigate the, the effect of the greenhouse in, in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So that is one, one plan that they came out with and so many governments and institutions and, and business corporations, they agree, they say, okay, we can make this effort. So at the same time, a lot of activists were looking for answers and we saw it as an answer. And we work with a lot of the farmers in California, scientists, agroecologists. And then we, I was talking with my friend with Bandana Shiva that his, her book is called Soil Not Oil. And it is about the three crises on the peak oil, the, the crisis on food production and, and climate change. So, and then I was talking with her and I said, you know, my next conference, I would like to call it Soil Not All. She was happy about it. So, and we, we brought people around the concept of Soil Not All. So you knew Vandana Shiva before uh, starting the, this, this movement? We started working in 2011 because in 2011 in California, I started a project called Biosafety Alliance. And because we were very concerned in 2011 about the, the release of different permits that the government was given to Monsanto and other corporations to, to grow different varieties of GMO Terminator, GMO corn and alfalfa and sugar beets. So as a, Mexi as a Mexican, I am very concerned about the manipulation, genetically genetic manipulation of of corn because Mexico is the center of origin is, and is our staple food. So what happened, I was talking with my ex-partner and we been, este, she was very concerned about it and said, let's do something. And we've been living in San Luis Obispo at her parents' farm in that time. And I say, okay, let's organize a conference because I haven't organized a conference before on immigrant rights. And then, It was the moment in which I switched into, into este, non-GMO advocacy but, and, and we started reaching out different organizations and talking about organizing this conference. And she was researching and there was no any gathering in the U.S. about non-GMO advocacy in the time. There has been one very small gathering like in 2005 and there was an organization in that time working on non-GMO on advocacy But 
she contacts some people of the organization, a couple of people who were still around. And they say, you know, we stopped working on that because we didn't have funding. Mm -hmm. So always, you know, this kind of, and then we didn't have the funding, but we want to do something. And we start reaching out a lot of speakers. And then she went to, to Oregon, to Eugene, to the Environmental Law Conference in Eugene, Oregon at the university. And Bandana Shiva was going to be the keynote speaker. And then she asked her, hey, would you come to a conference on non-GMO advocacy? And she said, yes, if you do it in, in September, because in September in California was, was going to be the first heirloom expo, a huge conference on seeds, you know, heirloom mm -hmm. seeds. And then she said, they, they're going to pay my tape. If you do it around the same time, I'm going to go to both. And then she came the first year, and it was good because also it brings a lot more people. We, it was the largest gathering on, on non-GMO advocacy in that time. And at the same time, they were organizing, we found this website, new website called Level GMOs. And then these people was launching a, a political campaign to level GMOs in California. Mm -hmm. So we invite them and then we start coming together different groups and this level GMOs and, and our conference that was was called Justice Begins with Seeds. And, and we were the platform in which all gathered and started organizing. And I was field organizer for Spanish speakers in California. They gathered like $10 million, but Monsanto and the big act, they gathered like, like $45, $50 million. And this was the Prop 27. So in California, you launch your campaign. I, I wanna, I wanna legalize marijuana, or I, or I wanna, I want the government to ban this kind of TVs, and then you put together certain amount of, of signatures. You introduce it to the legislature, and they say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put it in the in the ballot, mm -hmm. and then you gather money to put ads in TV. Este, with your talking points, and the opposition is going to get their money to put their talking points. It's the way it works, the politics in the United States. So, but these guys has $50 million, we have $10 million, and they have a lot of more ads, 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 you know, repeating the lie. So what happened, but I have radio programs in that time, and I have a radio program in Los Angeles that reached like 500,000 people, Spanish speakers, because it, it was a very large and we've been educating for one hour, you know, uh, program, one hour long programs. And after the elections, we realized that we have, in support of the Prop 27 to level GMOs, we have 42% from white people, 52% from African-Americans, and 61% from Latinos. So mm -hmm. we won, we didn't lose, you know. But we, at the end, we have 495 in support and 50.5 against the, the Prop 27 from the big act. So for 0.5%, we, we lost the, just for the, the, the Prop 27. That was, was a little. Story. It was story. We were very close and we didn't have that much money, you know, as yeah. the big act. So then we start working on the non-GMO and Bandana also came for many presentations. We've been working, we have been working like 10 years, you know, in different things. And for a long time, she was like more considering us the main allies that she has in California, mm -hmm. you know. And, and yes, we've been working with her. And actually, I think we, we many things that we have achieved is thanks to the work we, in collaboration with Vandana Shiva, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, with many organizations, but she's one of the key supporters, you know. Yeah, she's a big figure and she's also she's a great speaker. She's a rock star, she's very charismatic and yeah. smart and she has a long trajectory, yes. Yeah, she's great. Why do you think that soil is so important when we talk about climate change? I don't know if many people are aware of the importance of soil. Well, many people is not aware of the importance of soil. Actually, it has been like since 2015, so many people start working on that. They start doing like videos. Of course, in the academic world, it's, it's well known. But the problem is that we, we, it's not something popular. You know, reggaeton is popular. You know, like <laughs> cumbia is popular, you know. But soil is not popular and, and it's, uh, because everyone is tipping on the soil, you know. <laughs> and, and also, and, and well, if soil is not popular, it's not popular that carbon sequestration, the carbon sequestration concept. Now, the other problem is that is something maybe about it has to be introduced into the the educational system of each country, the the soil and carbon sequestration as a very main topic, you know, a survival is the tool as a survival tool for the future generations because when I was a kid I remember that they were talking about all the cool things that of, of having and transforming oil fossil fuels you know into oil into plastics I don't know if in your time when you was a, a little girl they told yeah. you ah oil is good because this yeah yeah I remember studying the whole like carbon and oil extraction and production of plastic and everything but nobody never told me all the details about soil and climate change actually they educate you about the different uses of oil in fossil fuels yeah as something positive yeah yeah of course so yeah, that is a big problem you know that is a big problem that the educational systems works for capitalism interest you know for 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 the the capital and well that is the first thing that we have to shift the educational system from the bottom up you know mm -hmm. and we have to start teaching kids about the soil science and carbon sequestration climate change the multiple implications. That is the, the first thing from my point of view. The other thing is demographics. We have to teach girls. We have to educate girls in poor countries, in global south, you know. A woman has to educate girls about demographics. I wanted to ask you, like, do you think there is a different relationship with soil? Since you lived in, in the U.S. for many years and now you're back in, in Mexico, Do you think there is a different relationship between um, like wheat soil and wheat agriculture uh, in the in Mexico or in general in the global south and in the global north that you experience yourself like in, in the culture of people? I think that the difference between the U.S. and Mexico in the U.S. is a commodity, you know. In Mexico also there is industrial agriculture, but... And of course, there are small farmers in the U.S. that are doing very good work, are doing amazing work in some areas, but it's the minority. Mm -hmm. But if you think in, in large scale agriculture, I was at a conference in Fort Mason once, and then they, they, they were talking that we have to talk with the people in Iowa, Pennsylvania, Kansas, where they are growing GMO corn. And, and they say, we have to talk with these agricultures 
with these people that are doing agriculture. And I say, well, the first thing is that they are not doing agriculture because it's, it's the farming is something cultural and it's not cultural using a big machine and, and just growing GMO corn in a monocrop. That is not cultural. It's not agriculture what they are doing. They are doing something industrial. And, it's the, and that is the difference with Mexico. I live in, here in the South. I eat every day. I buy like a kilo of tortillas for 20 pesos and are handmade with organic corn. Mm -hmm. 20 pesos, like $1, you know? And mm -hmm. I can buy one kilo in blue corn, or yellow corn, or white corn that are made right there, you know, by, by the ladies that they sell the tortillas. And the corn is coming from the communities. I, I was talking last year with these guys during the quarantine, before the quarantine, when it was going to start. And a taxi driver, and he's from the communities because San Cristóbal de las Casas is the, the city and the surroundings are all Mayan este, communities. And I have my land in Mayan communities. So I go out and back and forth from the city to, to my place. And then I was talking with a taxi driver and I asked him, so what are you gonna do if you cannot make money in the taxi to, to feed your family? He said, you know, we, as a community, we, 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 I don't really care because we are growing our corn every year for the next whole year. Mm -hmm. So I have corn and beans and squash. This is what we're gonna eat, this is what we eat every day. So I don't care if I don't make money in the city. I don't yeah. pay rent there and I don't need to buy water or, or gas because they cook with wood. You know? yeah. And then I was talking with another guy who was working with us and, and I say, so Alfonso, how, how often do you have to go to the city? He say, actually never. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's totally different in the United States if you are a farmer, you first, many farmers, they have to pay the land to the bank. It's not their land, you mm -hmm. know? So secondly, they buy, este, they use este, all these tractors and big machines. They buy their seeds every year. Many farmers, even they are organic, no-till farmers, they buy their seeds. So they, there are different kinds. Of, it's, it's very, very expensive to be a farmer in the United States. But if you grow like GMO corn, it's inexpensive because the government gives you subsidies. You know, mm -hmm. he subsidized GMO corn. But also for the United States, growing GMO corn is very important in the geopolitical way because food is a weapon. And for them, GMO corn is a weapon to destroy the sovereignty, the, the, the self-sufficiency of other countries because they introduced GMO corn to, for different kind of este, food or, or junk food production. And the other este, countries, they don't grow corn because it's very cheap coming from the United States. Yeah. But also for any problem, they cannot be self-sufficient in food production because mm -hmm. they are relying on these far, big farmers that are subsidized by the government of the United States. Mm -hmm. in order to break the democracy and the, and the stability of other countries. Yeah. So food is a weapon, and, and it's why they use the GMOs as a, as a weapon to, to intervene in the, the decision-making of other countries that don't have a, a big agricultural infrastructure. Wow. I, I mean, I was not so aware of, of, of this. It's it's scary that they are using GMOs as another way of um, 
yeah, controlling other countries. So I want to to bring the conversation to to another related topic. When you talk about um, agriculture and organic agriculture and also you mentioned uh, all the people you work with or um, the families you can talk to and the communities I would like to hear your opinion on on what is the value of uh, agriculture for people and especially for certain communities well if we talk about locally like here in in, in this region that is Mayan Tzotzil in, in Chiapas Well, without agriculture, they don't survive, you know, because there are no enough jobs. It's, it's more like for self-consume, you know. There are no, there is no like an industry where they can get paid well and they can go working. And I don't think that they would be happy working for other people. They prefer to do their farming, their own thing, you know, grow, raise some, some cattle or whatever. And it's, they are free, you know, and also they don't pay rent. They don't have to pay rent. They don't need the, the same cash that you need in the city. And they are totally connected to the land because mm -hmm. everything is around farming and all their cycles are, 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 are around the, the go with the this different seasons and the food production, you know, yeah. and they rely on these seasons, on this food production. Now there is a big problem here. That, and that is demographics again. 50 years ago, they need maybe 10 hectares to fit for one year, 10 families. Now we need 500 hectares. Mm -hmm. And they, is why they have in the foresting also. Yeah. So, but corn is, is a, needs a lot of water to grow, you know? If there is not enough water, it's not going to grow very well. And when you cut the trees, you could you also disrupt the evapotranspiration of trees to create clouds and to, to produce rain. As less, as less rain you have, and as more corn you are planting, you need more water. So mm -hmm. that is one of the main este, problems that we have here in Chiapas. And we can romanticize about traditional farming, <laughs> but the truth is that it's not the, sometimes our, it's, it becomes a monocrop, you know? It's not just like for self-consume. No, it's becoming a monocrop because mm -hmm. it needs to fit so many mouths. Now, in the United States, we see that now with the pandemics, with the, the COVID and all this stuff, many people who were in quarantine, now they start farming in their houses because it's a crisis. And a psychological crisis that they have to be busy on something and they say, okay, I'm home, I have a garden, I buy my seeds. And I start planting stuff, so it's a therapy. Mm -hmm. and, but also many people lose their jobs and things like that. They are not working, so they, they are figuring out what they're going to eat, you know. But we can go back to 1930s. In 1930s, during the Great Recession, the, the U.S. government was sending seeds to all the people, you know. They didn't mm -hmm. send, send checks to the people. They were sending seeds, and, mm -hmm. and they created all these Victorian gardens. You know, mm -hmm. but suddenly after the, the economy went better in 1950s with the boom, the economic boom after, after the Second World War, everyone started este, putting in their loans 
in instead gardens, food, food gardens, they start growing just grass. So mm -hmm. now more than half of the surface of in urban areas in the United States are, is just grass, plain grass, you know? Yeah. Maybe there is more grass than agricultural land in the U.S., you know? <laughs> so, and, and that came for because the economy went better and people didn't have to, 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 buy, to produce food in their backyards. If we talk about the price of food in the United States and the price of food in Mexico, for example, the, if you buy food in the United States, it's the cheapest in the world. It's the most inexpensive food that you can buy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when you go to the farmer's market on, on a, in the summertime, you can buy like one kilo of tomatoes for $3. Okay. In Mexico, if you go today to the market, you're going to buy one kilo of tomatoes for, I don't know, 25 pesos maybe. You know, and you can think, okay, why is more... Este, if 25 pesos is less than $3, you know, mm -hmm. why I am saying that it's inexpensive in the U.S. than in Mexico? It makes sense if you think of their income, because in the United States, you're going to make $100 a day. Yeah. So pay, you pay $3, you are paying 3% of your income. Mm -hmm. In Mexico, you're going to make like 100 pesos a day and you are paying 25 pesos. But because in the United States is subsidized and also they get very cheap food from other countries. Mm. And, and we can see, for example, Santa Barbara County in California, they, they have a very good, este, it's a, an area that is like subtropical or something, like and they, they can grow food year round. But if you go north, in other altitudes like New York, that's, that's those areas that are very cold most of the year, it's impossible to grow food year, year round. Mm -hmm. So what happens, Santa Barbara County, 95% of the food that they produce, it goes to the north, you know, all year. Yeah. And 95% of the food that they consume is coming from Chile, from Mexico, from, you know, from different places. Because yeah. it's double profit. Mm -hmm. It's double profit because they are este, producing the food in Santa Barbara with immigrants that are very low paid, you know, with este, with low wages and these immigrants are working really hard este, most of the year it's very cheap the, the the labor and they send to the north the the food and sell it expensive and they buy very cheap food from Mexico from este I don't know from Central America they sell it to the, they feed these immigrants with that inexpensive food they, so they make double profit the the big loser here. They are the winners, but the big loser is the environment. Because yes. if you think of the, the carbon footprint of an avocado in the United States, it's 3,000 miles. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how much, how much fossil fuels they are using to transport everything? Right. So that's the main problem. No? Mm -hmm. And do you think that people are aware of that or they are becoming more aware? of these dynamics? The we see the consumption of organic local food grew exponentially, you know? Yeah. In, in, but it, is, it takes a lot of work and a lot of more organizations, a lot of more people getting involved. And I think it's a generational thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Because in the past, maybe the other generation, the, the generations before, They were not that concerned because we were not talking a lot about climate change. 
because for example, talking about the example of California, in California in, in the 2013, 14, 15, 16, there was a, a, a draft like seven years long. Mm -hmm. California has a Mediterranean weather where you see the rain only in the winter time. Yeah. But there was a draft in California is a big agriculture este, sector and they mm -hmm. need a lot of water. So, so you immediately perceive that something is going very wrong, you know. Yeah. But also after those, this, those years with lack of rain, you see the floodings, you know, in different areas that start very crazy. Mm -hmm. But also now we are experiencing the fires. In yeah. many places of California, you see the fires. So now we are in, in re really, really in one of the places more affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. so of course, now people, after they lost the, their houses for the fire or, or for the flooding, after they didn't have water to, to irrigate their crops or, or to drink for many years, they are a lot more aware about climate change. Yeah, because right. they are experiencing them each, the like, yeah, the effects. Yes, so, but in other areas, if you are living in a city like, well, you don't experience it because you don't, you are not exposed to the, to the elements, you know, like in, in rural areas. Mm -hmm. Like here I can feel the, when I am in the mountain, I feel the wind, the, the heat, I, the rain, but I am here in this apartment in the city, I don't really care, you know, I am in my comfort zone. But yeah. when I am there, I really experience all the changes, seasonal changes in, in the weather, you know. Mm -hmm. So, And that is the problem that we, most of the people in the planet, they live in urban areas, you know. They are used to the comfort. In the winter, they use all these este, fossil fuels and, and coal to, to, to heap big, este, big este, malls and, and warehouses. And in the summer, they cool them down, you know. So they, they don't really experience these things. And actually, that is one of the main problems. When we talk about fossil fuels, the main consumption of, of fossil fuels is for heating and cooling systems. Mm -hmm. It's not your car, but it's your fridge that you have in your kitchen. Yeah. Your fridge is using more oil than your car. Mm -hmm. So cooling and heating systems are the main consumers of, of fossil fuels. And that is so, it's a fact, you know, you yeah. can see the, the numbers. So, and, and that's part of the comfortability of human beings in modern times in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Manipulating the weather by consuming a lot of fossil fuels. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, it's always about consumption. Like when, when you were talking about the food that is transported to other parts from California to other states in the U.S., Uh, or like um, thinking about cooling and eating all these huge molds. At the end, the conversation goes always to consumption and the fact that we should uh, buy less and consume less. Passive consumption. Hmm. The passive consumption is the, your fridge that is going on 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it's yeah. something normal that has to be on all the time. Yeah. This kind of consumption, I think, is the worst. Because when sometimes you want to take your car, I don't drive. I never have drove in my life. I don't have a driver's license. Mm -hmm. I use a bike. But when people drive my cousins, so they, they are, maybe they're going to think, do I 
drive to the corner liquor store or, or I use work, you know. But mm -hmm. when it's about your fridge, this you don't think about it because it is something normal that's going on all day. Yeah. That's why it's important that it's uh, fueled by renewables and not from fossil fuels, you know. It's something that we have to really, really think if it's totally sustainable, how far we can go with renewables. Mm -hmm. And I have any conferences and I tell the people the best solar energy that you have can consume is when you wash your clothes by hand <laughs> and you hang them so this, the, the sun is going to dry them. Yeah. That for me is the best social, solar este, energy, you know, that mm -hmm. we can use. Yeah. You know, if you have big windows and you use, have the sunlight inside all day, the light and the warmth from the sun and go early to your bed. You have to, you know, and get up early with the sun. For me, that is the, the best solar energy that we can use. Yeah, that's true. But unfortunately, there are some parts of the world in which uh, there's not so much solar <laughs> to dry your <laughs> clothes. <laughs> I talk for experience. <laughs> um, this is like a like a big jump, but I want to want to bring the conversation like to go back to soil and also to communities and, and how it's important for people. And um, yeah, as you lived in the US as a person from, from Mexico, why do you think that marginalized communities in the US are more affected by climate change? Or did you experience that? Affect because they are the, one who, the, the ones in California, at least in, in the largest agricultural system in the world in California, they are the ones that are working in the fields. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are working at 115 Fahrenheit degrees yeah. under the sun. So, and also they have to suffer everything that's associated to pesticides, herbicides. And many times they, these companies or this big agricultural is the business, they, they use, if, if there is no very good food production because the lack of nutrients in the soil, they're going to add more agrochemicals. Mm -hmm. And the people exposed to those agrochemicals are going to be farmers, immigrant farmers that, that are coming from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so they are exposed to, to the heat, you know, to the changes in the weather that the, the heat is increasing, you know, for climate change. They are exposed to more agrochemicals to try to that that the the owners of the land are using more to produce food so they 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 and they are marginalized because they don't have a voice why they don't have a voice because many of them they don't have documents or men, many of them who have documents they have to work in, in that kind of work because the only one they know or that's available in the areas so in in rural areas when we talk about urban areas este, also, if we talk about minorities like black, brown, este, they live in areas with high levels of pollution mm -hmm. because are the cheapest areas living in close to industrial areas, you know. They have, for example, in Los Angeles, they have to suffer the transportation because in Los Angeles it's a hell to drive around and most of the people have to drive because there is no a good transportation system in the United States, in, in, in California, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles specifically. And 
So, and I, I think that, and also the other pro big problem is the water, you know, as there are less water, there is less water available, they suffer more the, the, the lack of water or with a good quality water, you know, because in some places it's very bad the quality of water that you cannot drink it. And do you think that, or you know, people that migrated to the United States from Mexico because of climate change, consciously or unconsciously that they know or they don't know it, but because of the effect of climate change in their own country, they are even more pushed to to emigrate to, to the United States? People, they, they go to the United States. It has been like a tradition since 19, in 1920s, 19, well, more in, in 1940s, there was a Bracero program between Mexico and the United States during the Second World War, in which they make a deal with Mexico so they can send people to work in the fields because there was no like labor, mm -hmm. labor este, doing the full production. So five million Mexicans, they were working in this Bracero program from 1942 to 1964, when the program ended. And then after that, were more like migrants who crossed the border to work there and they come back to Mexico and spend a few months with their families, few months there. In 1990s, everything changed because they created the, the wall and it was harder to cross the border back and forth. So many people just settled there or they brought their families. But so far, I think what have pushed a lot of more migrants to go to the United States, the largest, the last large este, diaspora from Mexico to the United States was in 1994, after the NAFTA, the North American Trade Agreement was passed in 1994, because the, the, the production of shoes and, and, and clothes used Fall because fell down because the this NAFTA law the United States corporations based in the United States to bring things from China, mm -hmm. so we can compete with the prices, and and many people migrated to the United States in 1995. It was the last, este, last diaspora, no, in history in Mexican U.S. history, 1995, and after that. During 2008, 2007, many people went back to Mexico because the situation was very bad in the United States. So now they say that instead the, the numbers of going to the United States are less than people coming back to Mexico right. at this point. At this point, that, that is one of the... And the other pro, big problem that we have in Mexico is the war on drugs. So with the violence of narcos in, in some parts of Mexico, Mexico, many people migrate to the United States or to other states that are mm -hmm. safer. And, but at this point, not yet, there is like, like, like climate migrants in Mexico. Like, mm -hmm. I, I cannot see it, but I don't think that is going to happen. I mm -hmm. cannot talk about Central America, but I think it has more to do with violence lack of democracy in Honduras, in El Salvador, or places like that. It's the lack of jobs, you know, for the economy that's very bad at this point. But mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Some I think that there will be more people coming from California to Mexico, like climate change refugees, than from Mexico to the United States. I don't know. No, oh, okay. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> well, I want to 
I want to close our conversation asking you a very big uh, question that uh, I usually ask to everyone. Um, what is the meaning of climate justice for you? We have to really, really, really stop cutting trees, you know, because it's totally inter interrelated biodiversity and climate change. And when we talk about climate justice, we have to talk about biodiversity. If, if, we, if, if we don't respect biodiversity, we, we're going to increase the, the, the we're going to continue releasing este, gases that are going to increase the temperature in the planet, killing everything, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think that that is, and we are part of, of the, the species in the, in the planet. That it's, it's a lack of self-respect that we are killing the planet, that we are increasing the, the temperature. And many times we don't, we don't, we are ignorant about it because we live in urban areas and, and we are not tough that, that we have to, we don't have an, an educational system that really, really addresses all these, these, these problems. And, and sometimes we feel like it's not our fault, you know, we can think that it's not people's fault, but I think governments, they have to change the educational system and, and address all these problems that are caused by us. And just basically, I think that climate justice is, is, is the education. We have to educate people from the bottom up, you know, mm -hmm. and, and governments have the responsibility, the moral and ethic is the responsibility to, to do it, you know, yeah. to implement new, new different kind of topics in their classes. Is the next uh, year, so in 2021, the Soil Not Oil Conference going to take place? The 2021 is going to take place in August. It's going to be on Zoom, a virtual okay. conference. I hope you can join us. Maybe you can help me with some topics and names, you know. That would be great. <laughs> you have to talk about it. It's going to yeah. be and it will be great. Yeah, and and like just to 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 end the conversation, um, how do you wish that people could in, in engage in these problems? Like not only support you for the conference or join the conference or join different projects. Like what do you? What is your call for action? Well, the call for action is not to be a passive consumer of fossil fuels. As we say, we have to, to, to see what we have in our house that is consuming energy all day, mm -hmm. and how we can change our, our day, day like consumption, you know, in a way that is more effective use. And, and our day like consumption, I think that is the most important thing that we have to pay attention to more mm -hmm. than, than our electric consumption. We have to make the best use most effective and practical use of our daylight consumption. Mm -hmm. That is free, it's available. You don't have to build a, a battery to, to, to store the, the energy. It's right there in your window, it's in your patio. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the, the main call that I would say. Thank you so much, Miguel. There was, <laughs> was a great conversation. And thank you really for finding the time. Thank you so much, Cynthia.